I want to give you a little update on uh, the past few days that I've been able uh, to enjoy and participate with what God's doing. I'm part of a group called Excel Leadership Network, uh, and we do uh, we run discovery centers for people who feel like they may be called into into church ministry and specifically into church planning and help discern God's call and giftedness. Uh, and then support them and, and send them out to plant churches all over the world. In this last few days, I've been in Portland, Oregon, with a group of four pastors from Uganda. That God is doing some incredible work in their lives. And, and we, we, we had them together. We did a discovery center with them. And they are staying through this next week to run a discovery center, to learn how to do it, to take it back to Uganda, uh, to continue the work of planting churches there. Um, and I'm excited to get to be with them in Uganda at some point here pretty soon, which will be a lot of fun. Uh, but I want to tell you this story before I start this message uh, in, in John chapter 11 about one of the pastors. His name is Dr. Samuel. He's a doctor by trade. When he was 14 years old, living in Uganda, are any of you familiar with Joseph Coney? Yeah, we're, we're pretty sheltered in the United States, especially with our, our news. It's so skewed. Uh, but Joseph Coney is one of the most grotesque, evil, and demonic, satanically inspired warlords uh, on the continent. He was uh, in Uganda, started what was called the LRA, Lord's Resistance Army, uh, and for decades had a reign of terror. He and the LRA are credited with over 100,000 murders. They would go into villages in Uganda, kill the men, take the women and the young girls, use them as sex slaves, uh, raping young children, and take the young boys and make them child soldiers. And his terror reigned throughout Uganda, into Congo, Nations have been hunting him down. Uh, this young uh, pastor that was with us, Samuel, was 14 years old when the LRA and Joseph Coney ran, came into his village. And as they got where the LRA was coming, they everybody ran because they knew the result of it. Uh, he was hiding. He decided he wanted to go back to his little home, that is uh, where he's living with his family, and get his jacket. He returned home to get his jacket, and um, he was uh, captured by the LRA. Somewhere along the line, before he was captured, he had received a Gideon Bible, the, just the little New Testament. And uh, through that process, he started reading the Bible and accepted Jesus. And while he was um, being used as a, a slave of the LRA, they would shackle him up and march them and make them carry their resources over their head. And um, every time they would stop, he said he would get out his little Bible and read it. During that process, his, they had captors as part of the LRA that was in charge of a certain amount of young boys. His captor asked him, what is that you're reading? And he said, it's the Bible. And he shared with him the word of God, who Jesus was, and led his captor to Christ. That did not set him free, but his, 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 his handler was a little bit more lenient to him. So this goes on for far too long. Uh, and as part of their punishment, and after marching over the country of Uganda, they would come to these little respites and they would have to scour for food. Um, they would dig through the dirt. They would dig through buckets and wherever they could find to feed the army. And the one who didn't meet their quota, they would pick one young man every time the quota wasn't met and take a machete and butcher them into pieces in front of everyone. To continue this reign of terror, this is what happens if you don't provide for the LRA. One day, Samuel was the one who didn't produce. And so they brought him before the 
people that said, this is what happens. We need to, you need to understand. They got the machete ready to chop his body and him into pieces. And his handler said, who had accepted Christ, said, wait, wait, not him. He speaks English. He can still help us. And so they said, fine, we'll spare him. Because he was spared, they got another young man, pulled him in front of Samuel, said, this should have been you. We're sparing you. Took a machete and began chopping him to pieces. Samuel said, I carry that pain with me. That it should have been me. He said, I was ready for it to be me. Because I have Jesus and I'm headed for heaven. I don't know about that young man. His captor told him, he said, listen, next time we tie you up, I'm going to tie you loosely. The moment you get a chance to escape, run and don't stop. So a few days later, he had the opportunity and tied himself. He ran 80 kilometers, which is about 50 miles without stopping with no shoes. Collapsed at the feet of some governmental soldiers woke up days later in the hospital. And he says, it's so hard for me to reconcile my life and my freedom because it came at the cost of another one's life. And I told him, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And he's lived with this strange sense of enjoyment and guilt because this one who was innocent was killed for his freedom. And I told him, Samuel, when you tell your story, you tell the gospel story. And I want us to understand that what it is to follow Jesus in many other parts of the world is vastly different than what it is for you and I to follow Jesus. We enjoy such freedom. We enjoy such liberation that many times in our freedom and liberation, we forget that we're in need of a savior, of someone to die in our stead because we don't face the LRA every day. We don't face what others do. And so we have this sense of self-sufficiency oftentimes. But the truth of the gospel is that every one of us has gone astray, each of us to our own way and have lived in opposition to God's will, word, and way. That's called sin, and that's called captivity. And there was one who died in our place who was innocent so that we could be free and liberated. The joy that Samuel has in him because of his liberation has turned into this incredible devotion to God for the saving of his life and the giving him a new life and a new opportunity to serve this king and I wonder if we've realized the liberation that we've been given in Christ. I wonder if we realize that we were once shackled, destined for death. And there was one that was took our place and died in our sin. And I wonder if we live with this incredible thankfulness, a sense of responsibility, but incredible thankfulness and joy for the liberation that we've been given, the life we've been given now. Do you understand? Yeah. And so I want to start this morning, not with a message, but with a prayer. And I want to give you the opportunity, if you've never accepted this life who has died in your place for your liberation, today's the day. And if you have accepted that, but you have not understood it with joy and thankfulness for the incredible liberation that you've been given and a new lease on life, today's the day to understand that. And to live within complete joy and commitment to that life that was given to you and for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you didn't have to, but you chose to step into our place. And so instead of us being butchered, you chose that for yourself, Jesus. I thank you that it wasn't forced on you, that you chose to do it, not because you had to, but because you love us. 
Friends, in this moment, I just want to encourage you, if you've never understood that gospel story, that gospel mystery, that Jesus took your place, and you're starting to understand it now, I want to encourage you to give your life to Christ. To, between you and God right now to say, God, I admit that I have been chained and shackled to sin, which is disobedience to your word. Jesus, thank you that you came and were and gave up your life for me. It should have been me. Thank you that you took my place. I receive you as my Savior, as my life giver. Give me joy in my liberation. And I commit myself to following you and serving your kingdom. Would you tell him that? And be made new today. Jesus, in your name, I pray these things. Amen. You know, sometimes when I get around uh, people from other countries who follow Jesus, it looks so different from the way I follow Jesus. Um, and that's the way the kingdom of God is going to be. And that's okay. But sometimes it's good for a jackass to be around thoroughbreds. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it pulls me. It pulls me and it's, it's it, uh, you know, I, and, I, and I, I think something, you know, I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised uh, because it's not going to look like us and act like us. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, I mean, parts of it will, hopefully, uh, but there's a lot there that the, the kingdom is so, is so beautiful. Hey, John 11, whatever, whatever Bible tool you have with you, You'll find John 11 uh, right between John 10 and 12, so I hope that helps you. This, this, this is the story of Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and Jesus, and it's the entire chapter long. And so last week it helped me just kind of stay seated, kind of stay focused. And so I'm going to try that again because there's a lot to get through, and I took up a bunch of time telling you about Dr. Sam. Okay? Oh, here's the other thing. So these four pastors from Uganda are in the States right now, and they're telling their story, uh, and, and, um, and they're trying to raise a bunch of money for church planting back in Uganda and Congo. And so just be praying for those four guys that God makes their trip fruitful and beneficial for his kingdom and protects their family while they're gone and sets up great kingdom stuff for them when they get back. Would you just keep them in prayer? I'd greatly appreciate it. Hey, let's just go through this. Uh, someone on the clicker is going to follow me as I go through this, and I'm not going to worry about the clicker so much. It's just it's just the text. There's a lot here. Let me just read the first three verses. Follow along. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and, his, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, and this was the word, Lord, the one you love is sick. Um, I don't do well with hints. I prefer someone is just straight. This is what I want. This is what I think. Like, don't play games and don't make me guess. I would not have done well with Mary and Martha because they come to the sin word and all they say, Lord, the one you love is sick. If I was Jesus, I'd be like, yeah, duh, I'm Jesus, I know. Are you asking for something? There's no request for help. Did you notice that? They never asked Jesus to do a thing. And here's why. And here's what I have to learn. Impl there was no request for help because there's an implication that love means action. There's an implication that love means action is to follow. And they knew that if Jesus did love, Jesus would act. So they didn't have to ask him anything. All they had to do was establish the fact that Jesus, you love him. You follow? See, the same is true for us. We have to understand that the moment we say we love someone, implied in that statement of love is the follow-up of action. That's profound enough in our human relationships. It ought to be more profound in our relationship with God. The moment we say, God, I love you, Jesus, I love you, implied in that statement of love 
is that there's action that's following. Love cannot be just sentimental and a statement. Love it. Love's got to be followed. The statement of love has got to be followed by action. And that's what they're saying to Jesus. Now, it's interesting to me that they feel the need to remind Jesus that Jesus loves Lazarus. That's how they start this whole thing. Jesus, the one you love, remember? Just remember how much you love him, right? It's interesting that there are three times in the Gospel of John when someone who is very close to Jesus comes and asks Jesus for help. And every time, Jesus' response is the same. So pay attention to this, because if we feel like we're close to Jesus and we ask him for help, his response is probably going to be the same as it was. You want to know how he responded to every time someone close to him asked him for help? You want to know how, what his response was? Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. And so, so here's, here's, here's the first thing he does. When someone close to Jesus asks him for help, the first thing is he refuses to grant the immediate request. He refuses to act. The second thing Jesus does is that later that request is, refill, is fulfilled, but he makes the point that it's according to his schedule, not the asker's schedule. The third thing Jesus does is that he shows that his delays are not necessarily his denials. And the fourth thing he does is he makes sure that we know, that the one asking knows that what he does is intended to bring God glory, not them. So when we come to God and we, and we feel like, God, hey, we got a thing here, do this, he's probably going to respond the same. He's not going to immediately respond to our request. And he's going to make sure we understand it's his timetable, not ours. And he's going to make sure that we understand that there might be a delay, but it doesn't necessarily mean there's a denial because it's for his glory, not ours. And again, I love the fact that these Mary and Martha send word and they say, Jesus, the one you love is, is sick. You know, it's interesting. John is the one who records this for us. And in, in John's word, John will say, I am the one that like, like I'm, I, I'm the disciple Jesus loved. That's what he says about himself. But the only time we're told that, that, that Jesus has that type of relationship with someone is with Lazarus. Lazarus is the one that Jesus loves. And it's interesting to me that Mary and Martha come to him and they ask Jesus's assistance based on the love that he has for Lazarus, not based on Lazarus's behavior for him. This is an important thing for us to understand, especially regarding prayer. To come to God based on the foundation of his love for us, not what we've done for him. And, and, and this is what, where we get it wrong sometimes. Sometimes we come to God and we say, God, step in, do this. I've been doing this right. I've been doing that right. I got this in order. I got that in order. I've served. I've given. God act. God doesn't work according to those that, that what God does is say, I don't work because of what you've done for me. I work for you because I love you. And that it's a very powerful prayer position to say, God, because you love me, this is my request. God, because you love me, this is my prayer. God, because you love me, without ever getting to the point of, and by the way, I have, do you understand? What it'll do, it'll change your prayer life. Because when we pray to God, God, do this because I have, it makes God in debt to us. And that is a real dangerous place to live. And when we say, God, in spite of what I've done, you love me, so move your hand for me. That, that's a whole different understanding of why God would do Do you understand? You follow me? I challenge you this week, whenever you petition God, whenever you pray and ask God for them, to start not with what you have, but to start with this, Jesus, because you love me. Father, because you love my son. Father, because you love my daughter. God, because you love my wife. Because you love me. Powerful position of prayer. You got it? Mary and Martha. You know what the first time we meet Mary and Martha is not in the, the, the gospel of John. It's in the gospel of Luke. And I just want to, I want to tell you where, where we meet them because it'll tell you a little bit about them. So I, I have this 
bookmarked in my Bible in, in, in Luke chapter 10, because th this, this passage here is important to me. This is a bookmark that my son Wyatt uh, colored for me when he was three years old. It's about all he was capable of three. That's, that's what it is right there. It says, Dad, you're the best. He's a smart kid. <laughs> Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary's chosen what's better. I'm not going to take it away from her. Let her do what she's doing. What we learn about Martha Mary this. Martha was industrious. She was responsible. She was respectable. She had a mortgage and she had a job. Her sister Mary was a Gen Z person who lived in the basement. <laughs> like, of course, she was distracted by all the work. She was responsible. Uh, and, and so they're, they're around Jesus. And it, Jesus, the Bible says Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. See, what the work, it's not that she was working and she shouldn't have been working. We should be working. But she was distracted by the work that was done. Here, here's that word distracted means that she was. She was troubled with care about the details. She was overly concerned about all the little details. Any of you? Like it wasn't good, as good as it was, it wasn't good enough. There was always something you could do better. There was always something that had to be, there was always work. She was distracted. It's not that she was working, she was distracted by the work. By the preparations that had to be done. See, the opportunity had become an obligation. She had the opportunity to serve. The opportunity, because of her distracted by the details, became an obligation that she did not enjoy. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he's saying that Mary, on the other hand, has learned to stop for a moment and just be. That's called Sabbath. And it's not that rest and work are two opposite. They're two, they're two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of a disciple. A disciple has to learn to stop and sit it's called Sabbath. When we look back with Thanksgiving, rather looking forward to preparation. But a disciple also has to work. Just in the work of a disciple, not to be distracted by the details, to consider an opportunity, not an obligation. And too many people in church, not here, other churches, have decided that their, goal, their role on Sunday is to just come and sit rather than to work. And when they do work, it's an obligation rather than an opportunity. And so they resist it. And so Jesus is saying, look, you, yes, you need to rest and just be with me. It's called a Sabbath. And when you get the Sabbath right in your life, the work you do for me in the kingdom will be an opportunity, not an obligation. The reason why it feels an obligation is because you get so overworked and so overscheduled because you're not protecting your Sabbath. And when you protect your Sabbath, you have energy and the work is a, is a joy and opportunity, not an obligation. Matter of fact, Jesus in Mark 10, 45 says, Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. And what happens with a lot of Jesus' followers, they have come to be served. Rather than, and, and so right up front, we learn from these two that there's a great balance in life that has to be struck of resting in his presence and of serving his kingdom. Now, let me give you a great opportunity. Those of you who are comfortable resting in his presence, let me give you a great opportunity to serve his kingdom. Uh, in, in a real practical way in this church, Gary Ryder has been done doing a yeoman's work of our facility uh, and of preparation for everything on Sunday morning. He and, he and uh, 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 Jeff have just gone overboard. Jeff McClure have gone overboard and get stuff ready for everybody to come and, and sit at Jesus' feet. Not, not me. I, mean, I don't even need to apply me with Jesus on that scenario, but. I didn't mean that part. You understand that. But anyway, like, like they, so Gary's moving to Idaho in a few weeks. He and his wife are moving to Idaho. And so you know what that means? It means, it, it means based on our previous behavior, we expect him to come back every weekend and set stuff up. 
And so here's what I know. We've got a lot of people in the church that have told me, hey, I will, I'll do stuff. Just let me know what I got to do. We, we, got, we got a lot of workers. We got, we got no sergeants. I, I don't need more people to say that will we'll help if you let me know. I need a couple of people to say, I will take charge and, and orchestrate it and lead it. Does that make sense to you? All I need is one or two. And so what I've told my staff, don't do a thing of anything that Gary used to do. We're just going to let it go undone. Ouch, you expect us to do it all? Are you kidding me? We got plenty. This is your time. to. So, so, so this Mary and Martha, they're, they're industrious, one of them, and, and, and one of them, understand, the rest, so the, the disciple has to understand the balance of both. Disciples got to understand the balance of both. Look at verse four. When Jesus heard this, he said, the sickness will not end to death. No, it's for God's glory that the God's son will be glorified through it. Did you know that when Jesus said that, Lazarus was already dead? We understand the time frame. Lazarus, Lazarus is already dead. And he says, this sickness won't end in death. What? Like, like Jesus knows something that they don't know at the time. Like, like he, he's not talking about, he, he's, he's talking about that he's going to do something that they're not ready for. He's speaking in advance of what he's going to do because of who he is. And I'm reminded of Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for the good of those who love him, called according to his purpose, even death. I'm doing something in this. It's not going to end like you think. The, the result of this is going to be God's glory, not the elevation of the power of death. It's going to be the result of God's glory. So just, just hang, he's telling them, just hang tight. Look at verse five and six. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard he was sick, he didn't do a thing. Let that sink in. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So when he heard, yet he stayed there two more days. Does that make any sense to anybody? Think about it. I know he's sick. I love him. I'm not going to do a thing. That's tough. That's really tough. I love you, but I'm not going to do nothing. Yet. See, here's, here, here's why this hard. Because our tendency is to interpret God's love through the experience of our circumstance. And what we ought to do is interpret our experience or our circumstance through the lens of God's love. And this is where we get it twisted. We interpret God's love through the experience of our circumstances. So when it goes bad, we interpret that maybe God doesn't love me so much. What else do I need to do to show him I'm worthy of love? Rather, we should interpret God's love through the lens of our circumstance. I know he loves me. Uh, we ought to interpret our circumstance through the lens of his love, rather. Uh, like, I know he loves me, and so I know that he's working something. I know he's doing something. I don't know what it is yet because it looks real bad right now, but I know he loves me. And so this circumstance has got to turn around somehow. Does that make sense? You understand? See, just because God, Jesus allows trouble is not a negation of Jesus' love. It's an important thing for us to understand. And, and, and I, I want to jump down a few verses because Jesus has this little interaction with some of his disciples and, and they, they talk about some things that, that I don't want to get into right now. I want to I stay with this Mary and Martha thing and go down to verse 17. And verse 17 through 20 says this, on Jesus' arrival, so he waits two more days and then he finally starts showing up to Mary and Martha because Lazarus, he hears, has been sick. On his arrival, uh, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Now, no, no, watch this. Jesus waits four days to show up. That means Lazarus has been dead how long? Four days, like, like he actually waits two days because two days has already gone by. And so, so, so he, 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 he waits four days, there's four days that go by. 
from the time Lazarus got to, sick to the time Jesus showed up. Why, why, why did Jesus, why was it four days? Yeah, let, let me tell you why it's four days. Because they had a superstition around death back then. That the spirit would leave a body, when the body died, the spirit would leave the body and would hover around for three days. Wanting to get back into the body. And if it couldn't get back in the body in three days, it would leave. And then the body would start the decomposition process. So what Jesus was doing here was saying, I'm going to destroy all your superstition by making you wait past the point of hope. So you have no superstition. You have no framework to, to, to understand what it is I'm about to do. And if I don't push you to that point, you'll never understand who I am. And so sometimes God pushes us past the point of any answer we could provide, of any hope we could have to get us to the point of finally understanding who he is. So that's why he waited four days. And it's interesting to me that the scripture says in verse 20, when Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went out to him to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Here's what happens. When we feel like God let us down, our response will be probably one of two that we see in Martha and Mary. And they're so in tune to their personalities. Martha's a take charge type. She's the go-getter. She's the type A leader. And when God lets her down and he, she hears that Jesus is coming, she goes out to confront him. And that's how some people do. They're like, God, how could you? After all I've done, after all they've done, after how they've served, after all I've given, are you kidding? This is how, how? right? Some of you have had those conversations with God. God, how could you allow this? I love you, I serve you, I give. That's how Martha responded. It was a confrontational. But Mary was different. Mary, she felt like God let her down and she went inside and pouted. She withdrew. She said, fine. That's how this is going to go down fine. I mean, I'm not going to go anymore. I'm not going to worship anymore. I'm not going to serve anymore. I'm not going to give anymore. That's how this is going to go down. Some of you have been there, right? And this is, this is how a lot of people, like one of those two ways. It's how we, when we feel like God let us down. Look at verse 21 and 22. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Do you hear the accusation in that? God, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. God, if you had chosen to do something, if you chose to show up, if you chose to get active, if you chose to show your hand, if you chose to speak into it, things would have been different. But you didn't, and it's not different. Can you hear the accusation? It's interesting. It's interesting the struggle that's going on with Martha right now. And if you pay attention to the struggle, I think you might see it happen in you. There's the accusation there of God, you didn't. But look, there's also the statement of authority. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. There, there's this strange tension that I'm so disappointed that you let it get to where it got to. And if you chose to show up, you, you could have you prevented this. But even now I know that you can. Do, do you feel the tension? Have you had that tension before? God, I know you could have but you were late and I don't understand that and I'm disappointed, but I, even now I know that you can. Friends, please understand that it is great heresy to suggest God is late for anything. When we feel like God is late, we need to adjust our time schedule, not his agenda. He is not late nor slow as some understand slowness, the Bible says. There is great power in even now prayers. But I know that even now, God will. There's great power in even now prayers. God, this seems so far gone, but even now I know. God, I feel like there is no hope left, but even now I know. 
God, everything's falling apart. There's no, but even now, I know, there's so much power in even now prayers. I wonder, can you pray the even now prayers? When everything in the circumstance looks as if it is dead, it's gone, it's destroyed, there's no hope, can you pray the even now, though, Lord? I know. That's the power of Martha's statement. Even now I know. And I love Jesus' response. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. I mean, there's no description of what he's gonna do. There's no, Jesus doesn't lay out his plan. He's not like, okay, okay, I realize this is really, this is really hard on you. Let, let me just give you some insight as to what I've been doing and let me give you my plan for what I'm doing. In the like, does God ever respond to us that way? <laughs> does God ever like, you know, that's fine. Look here, I know you're struggling. I know you're like, let me tell you all the stuff I'm lining up and let me tell you how it's going to go. First, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. God never responds to us like that, ever. He just, he, he, what Jesus did for month is he gave, her, he, he gave her one glimmer of hope, but not an explanation why. He said, don't worry, I got this. Your brother's going to live again. That's it, the one glimmer of hope. And that's what he does to us. He doesn't give us, he, what he does say, he gives us a glimmer of hope. I work all things together for good those who love me, call them according to my purpose. Glimmer of hope. What others intended for evil, God intended for good. Glimmer of hope. I know you're crushed, but you're not going to be destroyed. Glimmer of hope. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Glimmer of hope. Never an explanation, never a detailed list, just a glimmer of hope. Right? Just a glimmer of hope. And, 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 and some of you today, all he wants to do is give you a glimmer of hope. Hey, I put this story in the Bible in John 11 just to give you a glimmer of hope. I'm not going to tell you the details of your story. I'm just going to give you a glimmer of hope through Lazarus' story. That's what he does. I love verse 24 through 27. Martha answered, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Like she believed in this eventual resurrection. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He said, do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's come into the world. Jesus says, look, you're looking for an action. You're missing the person. The resurrection is not an event. The resurrection is a person and it's me. What you're looking for is standing in front of you, Jesus says. I am the resurrection and the life. And if you live and believe in me, you'll never die. And I love the fact that Jesus asked her for a commitment. Do you believe this? This would, whenever you come in contact with God or his word, he's always going to ask you for a commitment. The Bible says in Romans to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is a spiritual act of worship. There's always a call to commitment by God, always. And some of you, God's talking to you right now, asking you for commitment to follow him, to serve him, to love him to confess your sin to him, to get your life in line with him, he and his word. He said, do you believe this? Verse 28, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here and, he, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. You know, it's interesting that during this whole time, uh, Mary's been in the house pouting, Right? It's like, well, that's what I was going to do. I don't want to talk to him. I got nothing to say to him. Right? It's, it's so interesting because it, it reminds me of, of me so much. Like, when I'm in those moments, I want to know that Jesus still cares about me before I run to him again. And that's how we are. We, like, God, if you'll just again reassure me that you still love me, and that's what she waits to hear. Oh, he has, he, like he's, he still wants to talk. He's still interested. And so she goes and meets with him. See, what happens is, is tragedy makes us think that God doesn't care. And so we're tempted to stay away from him. And she needs the reassurance that he still does care.
in verse 30, he says, Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, notice how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she saw him. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. A couple things about Mary that I appreciate about her. Whenever we see Mary, she is at the feet of Jesus in, in a position of worship. At the party, she was at a position of worship. Here in peril, She's in a position of worship, fell at his feet. Martha stood up in confrontation. Mary fell at his feet as an act of worship. She had a heart of worship, in, whether it was at, at, at the party or in peril. She was at, but notice what she said. What did she say? What did she say? If you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Who else said that? It's the exact words Martha said. Interesting, like Martha said, if you'd been here, my brother would have died, accusation, but even now I know, authority. Like there was a statement of authority that followed the accusation. In Mary, there's no statement of authority, there's just the accusation. What, Martha and Mary, two women say the exact same thing to Jesus, why? What? This, y'all are smarter than the first service people. It took the first service people a long time to get it. You got these two women, two sisters, they're real close to each other, and they say the exact same thing about a situation. Why? Because they're blabbing to each other about it all day long. All they're doing is talking. Martha's talking to Mary, Mary's talking to Martha, and Martha's saying, if you would have been here, wouldn't have died. And Mary says, oh, yeah, I agree. If you would have been here, wouldn't have died. And Martha says, can you believe he wasn't here? If he wasn't here, wouldn't have died. And Mary says, I know, I can't believe it. If he would have been here, wouldn't have died. And Martha says, I know, it's terrible. If he would have been here, wouldn't have died. And Mary says, I know, can you believe it? And all they're doing is just going back. Here's what I know. Be very careful who you feed and get information from. All they were doing was complaining to each other. Here's what happens. We will project onto God what we say to each other. Be very careful. Be careful about what you verbalize as complaints because your complaints will become your theology. What happens when someone starts complaining to us about a person, a situation, a thing, whatever, is what they need is a glimmer of hope, not an agreement about their complaint. I don't know why they did this. I don't know why they said that. I don't know why they acted like they do. Well, the response is neither do I. But I do know that what other people into for evil, God intended for good. I don't either. But I do know that God will work this together for, the, for his glory and for your good. I don't either. But what I do know is that you are to forgive. Glimmer of hope. Let me just, I'm just finish this out real quick. Rest of this real quick. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked, come and see, Lord. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. A youth pastor of ours wrote a song once. It went like this. John 11.35, Jesus wept. John 11.35, Jesus wept. When Lazarus died, Jesus cried. John 11.35, Jesus wept. No idea why I just shared that with you. It's the stupidest thing. Yeah. When he saw them weeping, that word weeping is the word that's used in Greek for wailing, for screaming, for a, a, a boisterous. It, it, what they believed is, is the louder someone cried and yelled at the loss of someone, the more they loved them. And so they would hire professional mourners. And they had a law in place that you needed this many mourners and this many flute players and all to, to prove how, how great their love was. And, and Jesus sees all of this and he sees that Lazarus is dead, and the Bible says he was deeply moved and troubled. That word troubled means the snorting of a horse. 
It means literally when a horse goes. <laughs> Jesus is seeing all this and he, he's like. <laughs> and it's done in anger. And Jesus is moved and angry when he sees what's happening. What's he angry about? He's not angry that they're mourning. He understands that. He, he, he's not angry. Yeah, what's, what's, he more, what's he angry at, John? He's angry at death because he knows that death is not part of God's plan for his people. He knows that death has been a robber that has that, that because of sin, death has stole, stole killed, and, and, and destroyed that which God would do. That death is the thief. And he's angry that this has been the result of sin for God's creation. And he's angry at death. He's angry at sin. He's angry that it has authority over people's lives. And when it says that Jesus wept, that's a different word for weep. It wasn't boisterous. This is a silent, contemplative, internal. When you're looking at something, you stop. And the tears well up in your eyes. And you feel something in here that's like, it's not right. And Jesus has moved. The Jews said, see how he loved him. But even some, couldn't he have opened the eyes of the blind man and kept this from dying? They, they, they say exactly what we say. If Jesus loved him so much, why didn't he do? We say the same thing. God, if, if, if you love me so much, why did you allow? It's the question of theodicy. If God is all powerful and all loving, why does he allow bad things to happen? I mean, I get their question. But watch this, I'm almost done. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Now, now it's significant they say it was a cave because the way they buried people back then, they took out a cave or they, they, they got a cave and they hewn it out and they put like eight, up to eight slabs where they could put a dead body against the wall. And, and they would put a dead body in there and they would roll the stone and it would roll downhill because the stone weighed about two to three tons. And so it was real hard to roll a two or three stone, uh, ton stone uphill. So they did it for protection of, of what was inside. Uh, and they, they, they would put a body in there and wait about a year till the body decomposed. And then they would go into the tomb and get all the bones and put it in a box and put the skull on top of the box and stick that box in the corner. So they could have about eight different family members in there, all decomposing at different levels. And one would decompose enough, they would put the bones in a, in a box and put the box. So you could have a whole generation of family in a tomb. Just stacking up, you know, granny and grampy and mom and dad and all that stuff. And, 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 and so Jesus says, take away the stone. Um, and what he's saying here, he's saying, I want you to move against the natural process of things. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, like, uh, I, I like Mary's response. You look at uh, verse 3, take away the stone, he said, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. The King James says, but Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> he'd been there four days. Again, you know why four days now, right? He was pushing back against their superstition. He was taken to a place where there was no return for them. He says that the decomposition process has already started. Don't see what, what she, she gave Jesus the right facts, but did Jesus ever ask about the facts of decomposition? He said, I, I already know what's going on. You don't need to tell me the details. I know what's going on. I've given you a command. You, you just said you believe me. Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Here's what I know. Faith is seeing what you believe. It's not believing what you see. When you believe what you see, you're from Missouri. But faith is seeing what you are, or is believing. Like you will see what you believe. It's called faith. And I love Jesus' prayer. They took the stone away and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. I love the fact that Jesus is like, look, I could do all of this in my own head because the Father and I are tight. But I'm going to say it out loud so you will know that he listens to me. Here's the, here's the lesson. God listens to you too. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. You've got to wake him up and rouse him to act. He's listening before you ever speak. 
And Jesus says, I want them to understand that you always listen. You never turn a deaf ear. And I love how Jesus plays this out. Verse 43 and 44. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out in his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I love this. Loud voice. Do you know why Jesus said this in a loud voice? He could have said, Lazarus, come on out, man. But he said, Lazarus, come out. You know why he said it in a loud voice? Yeah, two reasons. One, because the spiritists and the mediums cast their incantations and spells in whispers and mumbling. And he wanted to say, I want to make sure you know that this is nothing like you've ever seen before. I'm going to make sure you know that I'm not doing tricks. I'm not a spirit. I'm not a medium. I am the resurrection. So it was loud. You know the reason he said it loud? Well, duh, Lazarus was dead. He couldn't hear real well. He had to holler. But he said, Lazarus, come out. Why do you say Lazarus? Because there were probably a bunch of other bodies in there. And if he just said, come out the tomb, everybody would have come out. He's like, I don't want y'all. I just want Lazarus. If y'all come out, everybody would freak out like just Lazarus. Here's the thing. Now, pay attention to me. When I die, don't have no prayer meeting at the church for me to come back. When I die, can you imagine? I'm in heaven. Been there four days. In my mansion. Can you imagine? This is how it plays out in my mind. I'm in my mansion. I wonder who this could be. God! How you doing? Come on in. And God's saying, look, Carl, we got a problem. Those people down there, apparently they like you a lot. I didn't think I liked you that much. But they've been praying and praying, and I'm sorry, buddy. We've got to send you back to the ranchos. Do you know how, how terrible that would be? I mean, I love you all, but seriously, heaven? Like, just let me stay dead. And, uh, you know, I did a whole series on heaven. You need to listen to it. Did it a year ago. Wrapped it up around Easter time. Go back and listen to it to find out what's, what's going to happen the moment you say hello to Jesus. Go back and listen to that to see what's going to happen throughout eternity. Let me wrap this up. He, Jesus says, take off his grave clothes. I love the fact that Jesus does the, the, the resurrection work and then expects his people to help him get cleaned up. says, you got to participate with me in this. I'll do the heavy lifting. But you got to help people get free of their grave clothes. Some of them are still tangled up in sin. I've saved them, but they're still tangled up. They're still tangled up in their own decomposition. you got to do the work of helping them get untangled. I love that. But here's what blows me right there about this whole passage. Verse 45 and 46. Therefore... Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, put their trust in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The thing that blows me away is not the resurrection, because Jesus is a resurrection, I believe in him. The thing that blows me away is that they had seen what Jesus did, and the Bible says that many of them believed. Many? You saw what Jesus did? And it doesn't say they all believe. What more do they need? Many of them believe, but others went and ran and told the Pharisees about them. Many? Not all? What else do you need in order to believe? And friends, that's the question for us today. What else do you need? You don't believe yet? What? Tell me what else you need. You're not serving? What else do you need? You're not sacrificing, giving? What else do you need? I just... There, there was a John... John 11 is... It, all, all John 11 is is a preview of coming attractions. 
It's just a preview. It's a glimmer. Because one day, God's going to call all his kids out the grave. Quite literally. The Bible says when, when, when he appears on the clouds, the dead in Christ will be raised first and those also who are alive at his coming will be raised with him. Like, like one day, he's going to call all his kids out of the grave. And one day we'll all experience the resurrection. One day. Uh, John 11 is just a, it's a preview of coming attraction. And it reminds, come up here, Jeff. It, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 15 to 58 is some of my favorite passages in all scripture. Listen to what it says. Because one day, if you've got a relationship with Christ, your resurrection's coming. No matter how bad it feels now, no matter what the circumstances tell you now, one day, your resurrection is coming. This is what the Bible says. Hear the word of the Lord. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does this perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, for we and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the immortal, uh, imperishable and when the mortal has been clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. What else do you need? Your resurrection's coming. Jesus wants to call some of you out of the grave today. Come out! Come out. Yeah. Huh. Jesus wants to employ you in the work of the kingdom today. Help them take off their great grave. Get involved. Your resurrection's coming. Don't you dare doubt the love of God because of the circumstances you're in. View your circumstances through the lens of the love of God. I want you to pray with me. I feel like Jesus called some of you out of the grave. And some of you need to go through the Accept the invitation of accepting him as your, your savior and your leader. You know about him, but you need to know him. And I'm going to invite you in this moment to do that very thing. Between you and God to say, Jesus, I believe that you died in my place. That you didn't have to, but you chose to so my sin can be forgiven. I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me and to come into my life. To call me out of the grave and make me a new person. To resurrect my life. Friends, if you've never done that, would you just do that? What more do you need? Others of you are saved. Like you know you're going to heaven. But there's part of you that knows that your experience of heaven on earth is not what it should be. And I'd invite you to say, Father, take, help me take off my grave clothes. I got stuff that's wrapped around me that should not be. Help me take off my grave clothes. I want to walk in freedom and liberation with no entanglements. 
Some of you have been real comfortable sitting at the feet, not doing the work. I just simply invite you to say, God, would you just convict me so that I can repent of my apathy, my lethargy, my commonality. I'm just so common. Would you just convict me so I can repent and then give me all that your grace will allow me. Father, I thank you that you set us free. I thank you that we don't got to stay dead. I thank you for the resurrection and the life that you are and that you give us. I pray that we walk in that and experience the joy of walking and that the sheer pleasure, the sheer happiness and being called out of the grave and being set free. That's a glorious truth. Pray that you help us live in it. In your name I pray, amen. I asked Jeff when I was doing this earlier this week, I said, hey, I want to do that. What's that song called? When I leave this world, I said, I want, to, I want to start the message with that and I want to end the message with that. And so, and so I asked, we're going to sing that again when I leave this world. It's, it, that, that is a, there, there's so much joy in that and the truth of that because, because of the one who gave his life for us, for the freedom that he's given us on this world and, and, the, and the fact that this world is not our forever home, that we're guaranteed a resurrection. That's a good word. That's a good truth. And I want to wrap this service up by singing that song in celebration. You got it? Let's sing.